We're back in Ecclesiastes. Uh, We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, starting in verse 16. It's on page 10 in your order of worship there. It's also on page 522 in the Pew Bible there. And if you'd like to turn there, if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that Bible there as our gift uh, to you. But since it's been some time, let's, uh, let's remember where we've been before we take off today. So we've been walking through this book of Ecclesiastes and in chapters 1 through 6, we saw several months ago, they, they were the experiment where, where the writer of this book tried on the various lifestyles or worldviews, or we might say identities, to, to do life under the sun. His term for a, the world as it is full of frustration and difficulty He uses the word vanity. In fact, if you're familiar with the King James phrase, vanity of vanities, it comes from this book. And we might better translate that into our modern vernacular. It's just so frustrating. And he realizes that all these different identities are just coping mechanisms. Or as I just recently heard a Gen Z or say, they're just copium, man. Okay. You know, they really don't help you flourish in a broken world is what he comes to the conclusion. And so what this pastor philosopher then does, having come to that conclusion, he then gives us, we'll call them best practices for how to flourish in a broken, frustrating world. And he basically comes down to this point. He says this, wisdom can help you deal, but you're still gonna see really frustrating stuff, a world of contradictions. But wisdom means choosing joy in spite of all that junk. So we ended in May with the exhortation, enjoy your joy. Don't just hold on to joy as an idea, but jump in it, swim in it, relish it. Enjoy your joy. And he has to put it that way because for so many of us, that's hard to do. And so this passage now, he's gonna look at what hinders our joy. And I want us to get into the mindset of this passage, and so I want to remind you of what is now an older Disney Pixar movie, okay? We'll throw it up here, and this is class participation. Which movie is this? What is this? Finding Nemo, that's right. Marlin here is the orange clownfish on on your left. And turns out, as an adult watching this movie, you realize Brother here has got PTSD from something really tragic that happens at the very beginning opening scene. And his PTSD turns him into this fearful control freak with no joy in his life. And in his fear, he keeps his son Nemo from having joy too. They capture it so well, this opening scene where he's taking his son to school and he keeps going on each side of his son, making his son stay in a straight line so he can't wander off and look at anything. He's just, just stay focused straight ahead because he's so afraid of life. And so how does he deal with hard things, painful things, trauma, just like we do, through a fear response of trying to control life? That's our text today. So with that picture in mind, let's go to God's Word now. Again, page 522 in your pew Bible there. Page 10 in the order of worship. We'll also have it on the screens here. Ecclesiastes starting in chapter 8, verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. 
Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've revealed yourself to us in speech that we might know your truth. And so, Father God, we ask that even now you would open our hearts and reveal your truth to us by your Spirit. Show us the beauty of Christ and how much we need him. We ask this, Lord, in his name. Amen. And so what this text shows us today is this. The wise person accepts that we can't fully understand life nor control its outcome. And thus, the wise person simply lives and hopes. And that gets us to our theme for today, which is this. When life makes no sense, control freaks go mad, but the wise live in hope. See, we can exhaust ourselves trying to understand God's ways, drive ourselves crazy trying to manipulate Him, or simply live and hope under him. So I just want to jump right in and say, you know what, we can't understand it. He begins, he says, so that he applied his heart to know wisdom. Literally, he says, I gave my heart to this. He jumped in completely to understand. He jumped in to understand not the business, as the text says. That's too benign of a word here. He actually jumped in at, at all the toil or travail It's actually a word that's more often used to describe the birth of a child. He wants to understand all of that on the earth. And this is right after praising us and telling us to enjoy our joy. He admits that life is not easy and he desperately wants to understand why is life like this? Just like you and I, right? We long in our very soul to understand why in this messed up world. He says to us, life under the sun is frustrating. It's difficult. He says it causes us insomnia. Or he's saying that he's trying so hard to understand it's causing him insomnia. Either way, we can totally relate, can't we? You know, way back at the very beginning of this book, he announced his plan. He told us in chapter 1, verse 13, he he told us this. He says, I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. 
He gave his heart to understand this. He wants to know, and after all the experiments since then, after all his analysis, after the simple answer of finding joy, he's still on the same quest. Can we understand life under the sun? You know, I really appreciate how the book of Ecclesiastes here is so candid, how it asks these hard questions. I mean, we're not known in church world, are we? Let's not lie to ourselves. We're not known for being really open and enthusiastic about asking really hard questions. Often there's this social pressure in church, isn't there? That, well, once you become a Christian, life should be pretty good and you have all the answers and so be happy. And so if you have these deep, unanswered questions and these, and these deep troubles, there's kind of this pressure. Well, can you just keep that to yourself, please? But don't you appreciate how gritty and real God's word is here. He tells us straight up in verse 17, humanity cannot find out all the stuff that happens under the sun. No matter how much we may toil to try to find it out, we won't. He even goes so far to say, should you find a wise person who claims to have the answers, they are lying. Why are they lying? Why can I say it that way? Because the Lord has told us you can look on the front of your bulletin. We have it up on a slide. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, as the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. For those of us who believe that the scriptures are God's authoritative word, he, he's, told a, he's told us, I haven't told you everything. And most of our anxiety about not understanding life, can I just say it? It comes from our arrogance in assuming we should be able to know everything. That God owes us an explanation. But the voice of trust says what he says here in chapter nine, verse one. Look with me, what does he say in verse one there? He says, all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. He literally says, I entrusted my heart declaring that all of our works are in God's hands. See, right here he is talking to our, our inner Marlin, the control freak who lives in fear rather than joy. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants us to enjoy our joy and so he shows us what stops us and it's right here. Control freaks can't have joy. We're too scared and stressed over not having a handle on life. We don't have time for joy. Oh, hear this, dear Christian. It is one thing to hold as a fact of theology that God is in control. It is quite another thing to trust him to be in control. You're not gonna have joy in an unknown life without trusting God. In an uncontrollable life, the wise person trusts God even when bad things happen, even when you have questions. You know, one of the ways I've framed the book of Ecclesiastes for us over these last couple months is that Ecclesiastes asks the hard questions that the rest of the Bible answers. And so in asking those hard questions, it tells us some hard things. Like right here where it says, sometimes we don't know if we're getting love or if we're getting hate out of life. Did you catch that? That's hard. 
Being in God's hands isn't always pleasant. Real, thick, gritty faith isn't the pseudo-religious, well, everything's good with God, and so if life is hard, well, you must not be living right. That's on you. God just wants good for you. No. Life under the sun is not that simplistic. Ecclesiastes will not let us say that. Instead, it shows us sometimes life just doesn't make sense even for the faithful. But we have God's word. We have God's promises. And so when we don't understand lives, we read our Bible, we don't read the tea leaves. That's what this writer does here. Based on the truth he knows, he trusts God even when he doesn't understand. That's the essence of faith. The opposite of faith is fear. And in our fear, we become control freaks and we have no joy because when life makes no sense, control freaks go mad and the wise live and hope. So he shows us so far that we can exhaust ourselves to understand God's ways. The next thing he's going to show us is that control freaks go crazy trying to manipulate God. We see that here in the evil that men do. Look with me at verse 2 in the first part of verse 3. It says this, it says it is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, the good and the evil, the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. This is a really hard truth here. It goes against how we think life should work, doesn't it? He says that when it comes down to the circumstances of life, we are all in the same boat, religious or not, religious performance or lack thereof. None of that works to control life, to manipulate God into blessing you under the sun. It rains on the just and the unjust. All that religious ceremonial stuff that God is supposed to care about so much, he outlines it right here and says God really doesn't. All the things that so many of us assume, we do this and we earn a good life. Or when we're mad at God, all the things we reject and say, I'm not going to do that because I'm mad at you. Either way, God doesn't care about those things. That's not how you wring a good life out of him under the sun. See, in our fear of the unknown, instead of trying to manipulate God through our religious performance, we're invited in the rest of Scripture to rest in the gospel. That Jesus earned the righteous life and God's blessing for us. And that in his sinless death, he paid for God's wrath against us. And if we don't rest in that truth, then when things are not going well for us as Christians, we tend to think God is punishing us, don't we? This verse negates all of that thinking. Not only does our behavior not manipulate God, but the events of our life are not a litmus test for how God feels about us. Some of you need to hear that again. The events of your life are not the litmus test for how God feels about you. We read the Bible, not tea leaves. And the Bible says God loves us and has given his son for us. Really believing this is not easy. And the text owns that reality. 
by telling us in verse 3, did you catch that? This whole situation, he says, is evil. Now, unlike Greek and kind of English, which has very specific vocabulary, very specific words, one of the things you learn about Hebrew is that Hebrew words kind of have general ideas of meaning. They're not that specific of words. And so this word here is the Old Testament word that kind of means the opposite of good. So depending upon context, sometimes it means the existential reality that we would call evil. Sometimes it means what that existential reality does to you, your response. So pain, misery, hurtful. It can mean all those things, and it's actually used in both those methods in this one verse. First, he tells us that it hurts us. It causes us pain that life is not simplistic. We want good people to get good and bad people to get bad, and yet we see bad people get good all the time, and that hurts. Second, he then adds a little twist. He says, inside of us, we are riddled with bad. We are evil, and that evil comes out of us. We are driven to madness, the ESV translates it. It's also the word used for folly, the opposite of wisdom. And then he adds on just to make sure we're you know, really happy. He goes, oh, and then you die. So in a different life, many of you know, I used to work with the fire department. And the department I was with, one of the things we did is we would always go around throughout the year and we would um, tour the various commercial buildings in our district. And the idea was, hey, why don't you get familiar with this building before it's you know, full of smoke and on fire? So. Um, I remember we were at this small business and they were getting some electrical work done and my dad is an electrician and I grew up helping him so I really noticed the panel being exposed which is really dangerous and there was this big blue sign with bright neon yellow writing. It said, do not touch this or you will die. And then it said, and it will hurt the whole time you're dying. (laughs) Which is true. And that's how I read the end of verse three here. He says, not only can we not understand life, Not only can we not manipulate God into giving us a good life, under the sun our worst nightmare is true. We are going to die and we're going to live in fear of death the whole time. What we call living, we could actually call dying, according to Ecclesiastes. That the whole world is in a hospital and terminal. And churchgoers have no immunity under the sun. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants to remind us. Boys and girls, I want to make sure you're still tracking with me, so let's, let's look at your translation real quick. The middle of page 11 there, boys and girls, let's look at your verse 2 and 3. Here's what he says. He says, since the same things happen to the good and the bad, those in church and not in church, we can't look at what happens to us in, to understand life. It really bothers us that the same things happen to all kinds of people. So boys and girls, when you want someone to like you, maybe it's a new friend Maybe it's an adult. Maybe it's a new big person in your life. What do you do? You tend to treat them really nice. Maybe give them things. Put on your best face for them. Laugh at all their dumb jokes. And that's how we tend to treat God, isn't it, boys and girls? If we do all the stuff that God likes, well, maybe he'll like me back. But the Bible here tells us that that's not how it works. You don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to earn his affection, boys and girls. He's given it to us. We just have to trust him when he says he loves us. See, and for all of us, it's so hard to trust, isn't it? Because death is coming and it scares us. You know why death is scary? 
Because in a way that's so countercultural to our assumptions, the Bible is very clear. Death is not natural. The Bible presents death as an alien invader in our world. Something that's not supposed to be. In fact, the New Testament tells us that specifically we are slaves to the fear of death because it's an alien invader. And that's why we need Jesus. Jesus not only lived the life we should have lived, he died the death we should have died. And in his resurrection, he proves that he defeated death for his people once and for all to set us free from the fear of death. So Christians are still gonna die, but we trust that in Jesus, death is not the end, and that sets us free from the fear of death. That's the good news of the gospel. See, when life makes no sense, control freaks go mad, but the wise live and hope, which is where the text takes us next. What I'm calling L'chaim. So confession time, for those of you who haven't noticed, Every sermon title and every sermon outline point in the book of Ecclesiastes have been song titles. And in honor of my predecessor, Harry Long, who loved Fiddler on the Roof, this comes from Fiddler on the Roof. It's L'chaim. If you, to, to this day, if you go to a Jewish celebration, they will raise their glass and toast and they will say L'chaim. And make sure you get that little thing, okay? L'chaim. It means simply to life. And many believe that tradition comes right here from Ecclesiastes 9.4. Look with me, what, is it, what does that verse say? It says, he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. This is the only time in the whole book of Ecclesiastes this word hope is used. One of three times in the Old Testament that the word hope is used. It's a singular concept, so we need to sit up and pay attention. And what's he tell us? He says, live in it. In the face of these overwhelming frustrations of life, these questions of not understanding, of seeing the good people get bad and the bad people get good, of seeing the good die young, of seeing that you can't control life, what are you to do? You aren't to do anything. This text calls us to be. Verse four basically asks the question, are you alive? Well, then you have hope. It's that simple. To all the control freaks out there, especially those of us inside God's family, he tells us, check your pulse, and if you got one, have hope. That's it. And I have to be candid with you, my initial reaction in studying this is, is he he making fun of us? Am I being punked right now for an older generation? Am I on candid camera? What is this? And to make sure that we get it, he gives a proverb that they would catch that we miss. Okay, we love our dogs. They hated dogs. Dogs were trash. You did not want dogs in the ancient Near Eastern world. Lions were symbols of strength and beauty, majesty and power. And so he says, you know what? I'd rather have some living trash than a dead trophy. That's how good life is. Or maybe we would say it's better to be dead, alive and lowly than dead and exalted. It sounds so simplistic, doesn't it? It's almost anticlimactic. But it's so far from being simplistic. Increasingly, our culture sees life as a burden to be endured. Some have gone so far as to say that it shouldn't have to be endured, that our autonomy 
is so great that should we decide we don't want to live, it is not the government's business to make suicide illegal, and it's not your business to stop me. One of the most popular songs out right now that your kids probably know is, is have you ever been a little bit tired of life? Like you're not really happy, but you don't want to die. See, you and I as those who claim to believe in God's word as authoritative, we can't accept the reality of the first chunk of this passage that we were nodding our heads to without acknowledging the validity of those feelings because they're right here in the second part of this text. Life under the sun is hard. It is a burden. And the simple teaching from Scripture to counter that is to see life as a gift and live in hope. He tells the living, look, we, we know death is coming. And so instead of living in fear, what do we do? We drink it up. We swim in the joy that life has. We hope in every day of being alive. He says, whereas those who are already dead, they don't know anything. They're gone and they are forgotten. There's no memory of them. Which if, if you've been around since the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, this idea of memory, this idea of a legacy, of a remembrance is a huge theme in Ecclesiastes. Somehow to, to live your life in such a way that you achieve significance, that people remember you. And in a way that resonates with his original readers, he basically says, if you're still alive, you have a chance to cement your legacy. But then in verse six, he lands on the main reason why being on team life is better than being on team death. Look at me at verse six, here's what he says. He says, their love and their hate and their envy have already perished and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Everything the dead worked for, accomplished, felt, suffered, is completely gone in death. And he could have just said, couldn't he? Love and hate. For you English nerds, it's called a merism, where you take two opposite extremes and it, it, it means everything in between. Like when Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, or we, when we say, he knows everything from A to Z, it means everything in between. Why did he have to ruin that and add in this third thing, envy? What's the word used most often in the Old Testament for zeal or for passion? Passion's such a great word. And in our over-sexualized culture, the word passion automatically makes you go to that. That's not passion. Here's passion. You ever been mad at someone because they're not upset enough about something? That's passion. Has someone ever been mad at you because you're not bothered enough by something? That's passion. So when you combine the idea of passion and the idea of being remembered, of living a legacy of significance, it speaks right to where we are as a culture in 2022, some 3,000 years after this text was written. Under the sun, we find meaning in our passions, don't we? What we're zealous about defines us. That's why it's so hard to be in a deep relationship with someone who has different political or social views as you. Because we no longer have opinions that we hold, we have passions that define us. It's an identity. And so it's no longer that you and I disagree over this thing, it's that you are rejecting me. And so if our life is defined by our passions, if our significance is based on our zeal, then the thought that all of that ends at death wounds our very soul. It makes life a burden to be endured, not a hope to swim in. 
And this writer of Ecclesiastes, being firmly planted in the midst of the faithful, being one who clearly believes in God's promises, notice he has not forgotten what it's actually like to be outside of God's promises. He remembers the pain, he remembers the hurt, and he's able to offer simple hope in the midst of serious issues. Oh, dear believer here today, don't forget what it's like to be outside of Jesus. Don't forget what it's like for your neighbors to get up and do this daily grind when they don't know Jesus. To be so full of love, so full of hate, so full of passion, and yet to live with this destructive, looming death over them, enslaving them to fear, leading them to this life of trying to be in control of everything, exhausting themselves, trying to force life to give them what they want. Don't forget what it's like. Don't forget that while there's life, there's hope. There's a way out. I referenced it earlier, but I want to look specifically at it now. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15 tells us straight up, Jesus died to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. See, Jesus Christ entered in and submitted to death for his people. He looked at his people enslaved to the fear of death and he didn't see less than, he didn't see failure, he didn't see not good enough, but he saw those he loved. And so he laid down his life to break the power of death and set us free from that enslaving fear. All of that rich theology is contained in that simple to life. While we're alive, we have hope. Because in Jesus, God has promised he's going to fix this broken under the sun world. That's the gospel. Do you believe that? You can, even now. Just place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ as he's offered in the gospel. And live and hope. Let's pray together. My gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've come to us and shown us who we really are, that we are a fearful, fearful people who very rarely live in hope. So, Lord, would you not only forgive us of our failure, but would you empower us, Lord, into new obedience? Would you help us to fall into your grace and rest in the arms of Jesus who has earned your approval? And in him, Lord, would you help us to believe that you're in control and trust your driving. I ask you would do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.